Good evening, brothers and sisters. Welcome to this Ascension Day service this evening. We welcome all guests who may be with us here tonight, here in church, and also those who are watching via live stream. May God accept our praise and prayers as we gather to worship him, and may we be encouraged by the message as we remember the work of our risen and especially ascended Lord. Please rise to receive the greeting of our God. The Lord greets us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings of earth. Amen. Let us respond to the Lord's greetings by the singing of Psalm 68, verses 1 and 7.
This evening we're going to use the Nicene Creed. I'll read that with you. If you want to follow along, it's on page 494 of your Book of Praise. Confess with me. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he arose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. It's now sing verses 8 and 12 of Psalm 68.
engage in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, creator of all things, triune God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, your adopted children, gather together at the evening of this day to praise you in our worship. We pause this week to remember the ascension of your Son, Jesus Christ. He came down to earth to suffer and die for us. On the cross, his blood was shed to make payment for us and so satisfy the debt we should have had to pay. That payment, eternal damnation, was what we deserved. In fact, we still, each and every day, increase our debt as we consistently transgress your laws and commandments. But Christ's sacrifice wiped away our debt completely. This was the most perfect evidence of your love. We have now been justified and we are able to stand before you washed in his blood. We truly humble ourselves before you. And Lord, we give you thanks from our heart for this undeserved deliverance. We remember on this day that our Savior not only rose from the dead, but also ascended into the clouds and was taken up by you. And he sits at your right hand on the throne. Bless us now as we open up your word, as we hear an explanation of what our Savior is busy with before your holy throne. Help us in the reading and listening of this sermon so we may have a greater understanding of what it means to have our Savior in heaven. As we have just sung, O awesome God, you from your throne with power and glory bless your own. To you all praise be given. Amen. This sermon was written by Reverend A. Vandelton, Emeritus Minister of the Free Reformed Church of Manajon, and he chose as text for the sermon Revelations 12 and as reading from Romans 8, two passages. So I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to Romans 8, oh, sorry, Romans 3, first of all. Romans 3, verses 9 to 26, and then Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. So Romans 3, you can find that on page... 1,118 of the guest Bible. So we start reading at verse 9 and read through to, the, to verse 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. And then we will respond by singing from hymn 40, verses 1, 2, and 3. So verse 31. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. My apologies, I started too early there. So now at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
And I read the text, Revelations 12, found on page 1,226. Beginning at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male son, to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up by God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, this ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away from, with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. After the reading of the sermon, we will respond by singing hymn 35, verses 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, having the right connections to the right people in the right places can be of great advantage in life. The young man hooning in his V8 might be able to just cop a fine 
instead of having his car impounded if his father was the police commissioner. A minister immigrating to, to Australia might find the doors open more quickly if the chairman of consistory is good friends with the federal minister of immigration. You might receive a really good deal on a Hilux if your best mate is the sales officer at your local Toyota dealer. You might you yes, having the right connections to the right people in the right place can be of great advantage in life. We have a saying in English, it's not what you know, but it's whom you know. When two, two people are applying for the same job, one of them might have an excellent resume with degrees be behind his name and years of experience in his belt. But if the other applicant is the son or daughter of the CEO or the chairman of the board, he may be favored over the more qualified applicant. It's not what you know, but whom you know. Having the right connections to the right people in the right places can be of great advantage in life. There's something similar in the spiritual realm. It's not what you've done that will get you into favor with God, but it's whom you know. A person may have lived what society deems a respectable life, with no criminal record. He may have received commendations for having served his community for years as a volunteer of the SES, or the local fire brigade, or some other community service organization. But if he doesn't have the right connection with the right person in the right place, he will not be eternally saved. On the other hand, a person may have lived what society deems a reprehensible life. He may have a rap sheet as long as his arm. He may have even been a user with arms that look like pincushions. He may have been a pimp or a pusher, a thief or a hitman. But if he comes to have the right connection with the right person in the right place, he could be saved eternally. This Ascension Day, I preach to you the Word of God with this theme. The Ascended Christ intercedes for us before God's throne. And we'll focus on two things. In the first place, who shall bring any charge against us? And in the second place, it is Christ who intercedes for us. So the Ascended Christ intercedes for us before God's throne. Who shall bring any charge against us? You might wonder how Paul could even pluck up the audacity to ask this question. How can he ask, who shall bring any charge against me? Paul acknowledged that of all sinners, he was the foremost. He said that in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. For as he himself confessed in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, I persecuted the church of God. He also confessed in Acts 26, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, put, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Wouldn't those saints who were wrongly imprisoned rise up and lay a charge against Paul? Wouldn't the martyrs like Stephen rise up and lay a charge against Paul? How can Paul dare to say, who shall bring any charge against us? We can understand if Paul wrote this prior to his conversion. For then he had been a proud Pharisee. 
Back then, he considered himself beyond reproach. He was self-righteous in his own eyes. He boasted that regarding his obedience to God, he was blameless, without fault. Yes, we could understand if Paul had asked this question prior to his conversion. But in fact, Paul asked the question after his conversion. He asked this question just a few chapters after confessing his total depravity. The very same person who asks who shall bring any charge against us had just written in Romans 7, verse 18 and 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, Paul doesn't just ask this question about himself. He includes you. He actually says, who shall bring any charge against you? This is a good moment to stop and reflect on your own life, beloved. Could anyone lay any charge against you? Is your record clean? Or have you done things in the past of which you are now ashamed? Things you would never want to, keep, to be exposed? Skeletons in the closet that you would like to keep hidden? Can you confidently throw down this challenge? Who shall bring any charge against me? I know for certain that I could never issue this challenge as I am in myself. For if I did, there would be too many who would take the stand against me and convict me of sin. In the first place, there's Satan, who is also called the accuser. We read that in Revelation 12, verse 10. Satan would relish the opportunity to lay charges against me and point out all the evil that I have committed during my life. He knows all the evil that I have done even better than I know myself. Nothing would please him more than to accuse me before the throne of God. In the second place, God's word and the Holy Spirit accuse me. Christ once said to the Jewish leaders, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Here Jesus was referring to the words of Moses in Scripture. Jesus was referring to the law of God contained in the, in the five books of Moses. It was God's law that accused the Jewish leaders of Christ's day. And still today, God's law that accuses you and me. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We read that in Romans 3 verse 20. Christ also told his disciples that he would send the Spirit, and the Spirit would convict the world of sin. In the third place, my own conscience accuses me of sin. As we confess in Lord's Day 23 of the Catechism, it states there, My conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, never kept any of them, and am inclined to all evil. Of myself, I could never issue the challenge of our text. I would never ask who shall bring any charge against me, for I know that I would stand convicted of great sin. As a result of this sin, I know that I am worthy of eternal damnation. I deserve to suffer eternally in hell, and I cringe at the thought of such horrible torment. I tremble at the thought of suffering the eternal fire of God's wrath, which will never be quenched. I shudder 
at the prospect of endlessly suffering the pain of being eaten alive by worms that will not die. I shrink from the idea of weeping and wailing and gnashing my teeth forever and ever because of the torment of my body and soul. I can understand why our Lord Jesus Christ prayed in Gethsemane, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And you, beloved, can you boldly challenge anyone to lay any charge against you? Are you without sin? Are you righteous? Listen to what David writes in Psalm 53, verse 2 and 3. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1 verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. Perhaps as you scan through your life, Beloved, your conscience also accuses you of grievous sin against God. It may be that you are burdened with a sense of guilt for some particularly grievous crime that you have committed against God or against fellow man. It may also be that Satan, the accuser, hurls accusations at you, hoping to make you doubt your salvation, to make your faith fail, to rob you of all hope and fill you with fear of condemnation. Beloved, All of us here this evening are laden with guilt of great sin. We are all worthy of eternal condemnation. None of us deserves to be spared. But it's not what we've done that will decide our eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny destiny is decided by whom we know. If we have the right connection to the right person in the right place, we will receive, be received into favor. And you know whom this person is. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know the right place where this person must be, at the right hand of his Father and our Father. And you know what the right connection is. It is a true living faith that trusts in Jesus the Savior, loves him, and follows him obediently. If we have Christ as our intercessor at the Father's right hand, then none shall bring any charge against us. And that is our second point. It is Christ who intercedes for us. The language of our text is the language of a courtroom. We read about charges which refer to crimes committed. There is a word justifies, which means declares someone to be innocent. Then there's the word condemn, which means declare guilty. And then there's the word intercession, which means serving as the defense counsel. So our text brings us into God's judgment hall, the heavenly courtroom. The Apostle John was given a glimpse into this courtroom, and we read in Revelations 20, Verse 11, that the apostles saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. John saw the judge who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. 1 Peter 1 verse 17. John also saw that from his presence earth and sky fled away 
and no place was found for them. Revelations 20, verse 11. All the evil inhabitants of the earth, all the wicked hosts of the, of the demons in heaven fled from the presence of the judge, seated on the great white throne. And no wonder. Our God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. Scripture warns us to beware, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth, Deuteronomy 6, verse 15. Nahum 1, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now, in a vision, the Apostle John, he saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books and according to what they had done. It is in this heavenly courtroom that Paul brings us in our text, brings us in our text. And in this courtroom, Paul issues that challenge. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We might be inclined to say, the judge will. For in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, we can read, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That comes from 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Yes, one might expect that in this heavenly courtroom, God himself would lay the charges against us. But look what our text says. It is God who justifies. God is all that we said of him. He is a consuming fire. He is a God who feels indignation every day. He is to be feared. But God is also a merciful and gracious God. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 reads, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn away from his, from his way and live? For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In his unfathomable mercy, God sent his Son to take upon himself our sins and to bear the punishment that we should have borne. Isaiah prophesied of Christ and said in chapter 53, verse 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Knowing what God has done in Jesus Christ, Paul answers his own question. He asks, who will bring any charge against God's elect? And Paul answers, God certainly won't. He sent his son in order to be our savior. No, God won't condemn us. Just the opposite. He justifies us. He declares us innocent because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Again, Paul issues another challenge. Who is to condemn? And Paul answers this one as well. He says that Christ will not condemn us. For Christ has taken his condemnation upon himself, taken our condemnation upon himself. He died a hellish death 
in our place. He paid our debt to God and freed us from our sins. And to prove that his payment was sufficient, he also rose from the dead. No, Christ won't condemn us, just the opposite. He makes intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. And this, beloved, is the beautiful gospel of Ascension Day. Christ has ascended into heaven as our advocate, as our mediator, as our intercessor, as our heavenly defender. Who is there then who will bring any charge against us? The judge won't. Christ won't. Who else is there in the courtroom besides the judge, our advocate, and us? Perhaps you ask about Satan, who is also called the accuser of the brethren in Revelations 12. Will he accuse us? The answer is no. Satan has no place in heaven anymore. There was a time when he could appear before God's throne. All through the Old Testament dispensation, the accuser of the brethren had access to the throne of God. We can read that, especially in the book of Job. Satan was permitted to come into God's presence, and when he did, he would point out to God all the sins that the saints of old committed. He did so with the hope that God would turn against them, hoping that God would condemn them all to hell. But when Christ was taken up into heaven, Satan the accuser of the brethren was cast out. Revelations 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. When Christ ascended into to God's throne, there was no room for the accuser of the brethren in heaven. Instead, Christ now stands before the throne of God, where the accuser once stood. He stands there as our advocate, as our intercessor, as our heavenly father, as our heavenly defender, sorry. And he does just the opposite of what Satan did. He stands there as the savior, the redeemer, the lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice for sin. Who then shall lay any charge against us? Not God, not Christ, not Satan. Even our own conscience should not. The author of the, to the letter of Hebrews says in chapter 10, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. I, said, I say that our conscience should not accuse us, but sometimes our conscience does accuse us, and we can begin to doubt our salvation. Did you notice how in Revelations 12... We read that Satan had been cast down to the earth. Woe to us, for he remains the accuser. Since he can no longer lay our sins before God, he lays them before us. He points out to us what grievous sinners we are. He brings to mind the sin that we have committed, even sins of long ago. If we have committed particularly shameful and atrocious sins, we're easy victims. The accuser will endeavor to convince us that we are too wicked to be saved, that our sins are too grievous and too many to be forgiven. Satan's only hope is that in the courtroom of God we might accuse and condemn ourselves, despairing of God's mercy. 
His only hope is that we might lose hope and abandon our faith. So it's imperative, beloved, that we remind ourselves always that Christ, our advocate, stands at the Father's right hand. He is there on our behalf, interceding with the Father on the basis of his atoning sacrifice, which is of infinite value and worth, sufficient to atone for all the sins committed in this world and of thousands of worlds besides. However great our sins might be, the precious blood of Christ, which he poured out for us, is more than sufficient to atone for them. Because Christ is at our Father's right hand, as our advocate, our heavenly defender, no one can lay a charge against us. No one can condemn us. It is Christ who died, who is risen, and who stands at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Amen.
Thank you for prayer. O oh Lord, how comforting it, comforting it is to know that your Son made it possible for us to stand before you without guilt. There is no one to accuse us because it is God who justifies us in Christ the resurrection. Christ Jesus, he who died, he sits at your side and intercedes for us. He will never forsake us. Nothing can separate us from your love, not persecution, not distress, not tribulation, nakedness, sword, peril, or starvation. We can be assured that all those whom you have elected cannot be snatched from your hands. Help us to cling to those promises. Help us to hold tight to your hand and allow us to be led by you on our journey of life. That we don't seek, it, seek to do it in our own or on our own, but rely on you to guide and protect us. We pray too then for those children who have trials and tribulations which cause them distress. Those who struggle in life and those who are persecuted for your namesake. Help them to know where to find their comfort, their only comfort in life and death. That we are not our own, but belong in life and death to our Savior, who paid for our sins. We also have a Father in heaven who preserves us by his will so that all things work for our salvation. May we all respond by being willing and ready to live for him. And in this way, show our thankfulness for who you are and what you have done for us. Let us then boldly seek your face, there to find mercy, help, and grace. Our great high priest will intercede. Come to our aid in time of need. Amen. Tonight's offering is for the Ministry of Mercy, and the collection will take place at the door as you leave. Let us now conclude our worship by singing hymn 42, verses 1 through 6.
Lift up your hearts unto God, receive the blessing of the Lord, and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.